Right. Good evening. Welcome to the first cultural and historical studies and fashion media and imagery research hub event of this academic year. My name is Serkan Delis and I'm a lecturer and research coordinator in the cultural and historical studies department at the London College of Fashion. And I organize these events together with Pamela Church Gibson, who is a reader in cultural and historical studies. Uh, before introducing tonight's event and our speakers, uh, first I would like to give you some practical information. So a Wi-Fi account has been set up for this event and you can see the network ID strangers in style and the password on the screen, okay? Having said that, please switch off or silence your mobile phones during the event, okay? The bathrooms are located outside of this room on your right side, okay? In the event of an emergency, in the event of a fire alarm or other emergency that leads to an evacuation, please leave the room uh, by the exit again on your right, okay? And just follow the fire exit signs. And this event will be followed by a drinks reception to which all attendees are warmly invited. And this reception will take place in the staff room, which is adjacent to the canteen on this floor. So you're all warmly invited to the drinks reception. Right, so the Cultural and Historical Studies Hub, based at London College of Fashion, is a supportive space for the discussion of current research into fashion and popular culture within the broader subject area of cultural studies. The meetings seek to provide opportunities for interested researchers from the Cultural and Historical Studies Department, as well as from across and outside the college to test out new work and to find collaborative opportunities, okay? Uh, for this event, we wanted to work with the Fashion Media and Imagery Hub, and we really wanted to see what kind of synergies exist between the fields of cultural and historical studies and fashion media and imagery, as well as between the CHS department and the School of Media and Communication, where we <coughs> support our students throughout their entire learning experience. The Fashion Media and Imagery Hub is being led by my colleague Kelly Deersley, who is the program director for the Fashion Communication courses at LCF. And Kelly, could you please say a few words on the Fashion Media and Imagery Hub? Thank you. Firstly, thank you to Sirkin for sharing um, this event this evening. We're really, really happy um, for the School of Media and Communication to be involved. Um, we're broadening the remit of the Fashion media imagery hub to include communication so we're hoping that that will happen before the end of this term so that it will become the fashion media and communication hub um, we're going to hold a meeting in spring term for everyone who's in, in working in research in this area who might want to come along and do a, a sharing session and we will launch the hub in summer term this year um, we're currently without a research coordinator so I was asked if I would babysit, and I'm very happy to um, make sure that this happens, um, and we'll hand over to our research coordinator as soon as they're in post. But um, looking forward to tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kelly. 
So um, if, you, if you need or if you want more detailed info, further information on the research hubs, you can visit www.arts.ac.uk slash fashion slash research, which takes you to our research page, London College of Fashion Research website. Right, so tonight's event is entitled Strangers in Style, Digital Intimacy and the Self-Becoming on the Style Blogosphere, a title which I have to say I absolutely love, okay? <laughs> Strangers in Style, that just sounds so inviting and so moving. Anyway, so first I would like to invite our speakers. Uh, our first speaker, Rosalina, is the digital editor of Violet Magazine, writer and style blogger, Having won the Vogue Talent Contest at the age of 16, she has gone on to write for places including British Vogue, The Guardian, Broadly, Refinery29, BBC Radio 4, Suitcase and Metro with articles covering areas from clothes to culture to health to travel. Her non-fiction book, Notes on Being Teenage, came out with Hachette in 2016 and this book takes an honest look, an honest look at areas including body image, friendship, family, and online life. As an author, Rosalind has talked at literary festivals, schools, sixth forms, and bookshops. She has also performed her poetry in locations ranging from Shakespeare and Company to Burberry to the Society Club, and her first poetry collection, Brunch and Bain, is available through the New River Press. Our second speaker, Dr. Agnes Rocomora, is a reader in social and cultural studies at the London College of Fashion. She is the author of Fashioning the City, Paris, and Fashion and the Media. Her writing on the field of fashion and on the fashion media has appeared in various journals, including Fashion Theory, Journalism Practice, Sociology, and the Journal of Consumer Culture. She is a co-editor of a hugely useful and important book, Thinking Through Fashion, A Guide to Key Theorists, as well as of the Handbook of Fashion Studies, which is equally useful and important, and perhaps even more importantly, of an edited collection, namely Fashion Media, Past and Present. She's also a contributor to fashion as photograph, critical luxury studies, and fashioning professionals. She's also a founder and co-editor of the International Journal of Fashion Studies and is on the editorial board of cultural sociology and fashion studies. She's currently developing her work on fashion and digital media. And last but not least, Dr. Rosie Findlay is a lecturer in the Cultural and Historical Studies Department and the Dissertation Coordinator for the School of Media and Communication at the London College of Fashion, and she specializes in fashion media and the intersection between performance, dress, and the embodied self. She has a BA from the University of Sydney, and she completed her PhD in the Department of Theatre and Performance Studies at the University of Sydney in 2014. She has recently published her monograph entitled Personal Style Blogs, Appearances That Fascinate, and you can see it here actually, 
We have got some spare copies for those who are interested in having a copy of the book. And her work has been published in Fashion Theory about Performance and Cultural Studies Review, among other journals. And she's currently editing an issue of about performance, focusing on the intersection between fashion and performance. So tonight, taking as their starting point, Rosie Findlay's new book, Personal Style Blogs, Appearances That Fascinate, Dr. Findlay and Rosalind Yana uh, will have a conversation, and Rosalind's experiences, by the way, are also featured in the book, in Rosie's book, and they will discuss their own experiences of blogging and digital intimacy in conversation with Dr. Agnes Rocomora. So, without further ado, I would like to invite our speakers, and I wish you an inspiring and fruitful evening. Thank you very much. So welcome, um, welcome to you all. I'm here really to share. So the speakers will be um, Rosalind and um, Rosie, and sort of sort of to tease out maybe without making too much noise. I mean, uh, some key themes, ideas. I've got a personal interest in some of the stuff that you'll be covering. So, and of course, at some point, so maybe we'll talk, we've got two hours, haven't we? So maybe we do uh, about 45 minutes to an hour of discussion, and then we'll open the floor to questions. But I think that if any, any time you feel like uh, intervening or asking a question that is directly relevant to the debate or the discussion that is going on, please do raise your hand. There's a mic, I think, um, circulating, though I think your voice can sometimes carry quite well. So let's start. And I think um, maybe with a very, very general question, which is about knowing that you have been, you've, you're still blogging, mm -hmm. you have blogged, but maybe what your entry into the world of blogging um, was the why and how, and maybe then we can elaborate on maybe some of the specificities of your approach. So maybe first over to you. Um, so I, I started blogging when I was 14, um, and this was partly because at the school that I was at, we had a really terrible maths teacher who didn't teach us any maths for a term and just let us uh, look at the computers during lesson. And me and one of my very good friends would spend a lot of time looking at style blogs, which felt like this very new, exciting thing. We were reading Sea of Shoes, we were reading Fashion Toast. When was that? Can you that was 2009. This was in 2009. And it felt like this very exciting new format, this way of accessing a version of fashion that was much more personal. And this was in tandem with reading fashion magazines and suddenly realizing that clothes were something I was excited by and interested in. I'd also started modeling the previous year as well. So my interest in image and clothes and in kind of formulating myself through my clothes was something I'd already been thinking about. And I really started it because I was looking at other people doing it and I thought, I could do that too. I love dressing up. I love running around fields wearing ridiculous clothes. Um, I have people who can take pictures of me running around fields in ridiculous clothes. So I had a day off from school when I was pretending to be ill because I really hated this school and I just clicked start blog 
and it all really developed out from that point. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, it's funny, both blogs you were looking at, because I was looking at those as well around yes. the same period. Um, but I was looking at street style blogs. That was my entry into fashion blogging. So I was really interested in the sartorialist um, when he was starting his blog, and that would have been 2007, I think. And when you said you were looking at them, was that as out of personal interest, or was right. that already part of your research? No, no, no okay, just like just a, being a fashion nerd and thinking it was cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'd, I just finished my undergraduate studies, and I wrote one of my theses when I finished it, my undergrad on Australian Fashion Week. And that was when I realized you could combine theory with fashion. And I'd before that been interested in fashion, but I hadn't really known that you could study it from an academic point of view. So this was a very exciting discovery. Um, but I took some time off between that study. I knew I wanted to do more study, but I didn't really know what I'd like to look at. Um, and in that time, I was just discovering blogs, really, as a punter, I guess. Um, but I was living in Canada in this kind of gap. I have family there, and I moved over. And I started to see um, other, other blogs springing up, or maybe they had already sprung up, but I hadn't seen them yet. So Sea of Shoes, uh, Jane Aldridge's blog in Texas, uh, Fashion Toast in LA, Susie Bubbles' blog here in, in London. And like Rosalind, I loved the c ways that people were talking about fashion and style from a really personal and personally invested point of view. So I started reading them, and I was trying to figure out what I might do if I returned to study and I talked to my aunt about it. And I was thinking of looking at Irish dancing, actually, which was completely different. It was a performance studies scholar in me. Um, but my aunt said, why don't you look at fashion blogs? You're really interested in them. So um, that was sort of like a light bulb moment. So I came back to Australia to start my PhD. I nominated style blogs as the area study I was going to look at. And as part of that process, I started a style blog called Fashionemic, which was designed to be my space to explore and try out the uh, things that other bloggers were doing on their blogs. Coming back to the early days, or your early encounters, 2009 and a bit earlier with the, um, the, the fashion blogosphere, whatever it's called, um, how would you qualify it at the time? What was your, um, how would you describe it? What, what would you, f how would you best say what was happening and what was specific about it? Um, I think at that very particular point in time, because it was still in its relative infancy, there was a sense of community. Um, there was a sense of a lot of women of varying ages, but often young women um, from across the globe connecting over a shared interest. I think there was, there was something quite nerdy about it. There was something uh, about it that was very DIY, even though actually we've just cited quite a lot of bloggers who had access to a lot of designer clothes. Yeah. I think what we were still taking from it was how we could maybe replicate those looks by sourcing things from charity shops or from kind of junk sales. And I think there was, there was something that felt very organic. It wasn't about wanting to attain a certain level of visibility very quickly. It was about wanting to participate in a conversation and a group of people. Mm, absolutely. And I guess to, to qualify our discussion, there were fashion-based blogs on the internet that people were reading and engaging in before Rosalind yeah. and I both got involved. So there, there were, um, I guess, an aggregating cluster of voices year on year from the kind of mid-2000s to when I guess we got in, yeah. involved and then since then, it obviously has proliferated. Mm. Um, and I'd agree with everything that Ros says. The only thing I would add is there really was a sense of discovery at that time. Yeah. I remember looking at Tavi Gevinson's blog, Style Rookie, for the first time. I've seen her written about in a small profile. I think it was in the New York Times. And uh, I remember looking at it for the first time and just being astonished by how funny she was and 
the creative ways that she was putting her outfits together. And it's sort of that sense of seeing something that inspires you and using whatever you have to create that on yourself. So it's another kind of consumption, I guess, of using items to make something look the way you want it to look, but not being tied to a moment of, I'll go out and buy something, right, and, and reproduce the looks that way. It was more, I have some stuff my older sister handed down to me, and I can combine that with these other things I have into something that emulates Gareth Pugh, or something like that. And that kind of creativity, it did feel quite niche, and it felt almost like style blogs were, were pockets. Each one was its own thing, and they were kind of connected, and bloggers were writing to each other and writing posts and name-dropping each other in their posts in a way of calling out their friends. So thanks so much, Belle, for sending me this um, com top you found in a, in a vintage shop when you were in Chicago or something. Mm -hmm. So it really did feel like it, a community in that bloggers were kind of talking to each other through their posts from the various geographical locations that they were writing from. Yes. Um, could, you, could we elaborate or could you elaborate on this idea of community? Because it's certainly, so not disclosure, I'm not a blogger at all, but I've done some research on blogging, which has involved um, interviewing a lot of bloggers. And it's, it's true that a, a word that kept coming back in the, um, during the interviews where bloggers saying about this idea of community suddenly in the early days, um, and which I was actually really pleased with, having interviewed a majority of female um, uh, bloggers, and to some extent a sense of uh, a sisterhood, maybe, without sort of falling into some sort of uh, stereotypes, but that there was really a sense of support there. So, which brings me to, again, I guess the, the, the core of my question, do you think that, could you qualify what that community was about? Was there a sense, who was behind that community? Was it about women, men? Because after all, you never know who you're communicating with. Was that community reaching out offline? Was it a community of people, all white, upper class kids? Or was it an inclusive community? So could we bring in a bit of the kind of social critique, maybe, or unpacking, if indeed you have that knowledge, knowing that it's, if it's offline or online, it's a very different thing. Mm. I think certainly from my experience of the community that I, uh, that I had around me, because that was largely fostered by two things, it was fostered by the blog posts themselves and then also by the comment section underneath. Yeah. So you had this reciprocity of voices. It was very gendered. It was majority women. Um, there, were, there were male bloggers, but I felt like certainly most of the people I was connecting with were women. They were of all ages. The majority probably were white, but it was also global. So you did also, you were connecting with people in different countries from very different backgrounds. Um, and I think in some ways it was possibly, I felt there was more diversity at that point in who was being celebrated in everything from body shape to skin color. But maybe I, it would be in what you were to, saying. In what, in in what I was seeing. Yeah. But I'd be so interested to go back and see whether that was actually the case overall or whether that was just within my specific sphere as well. What but is your specific sphere? Um, I don't know how to define it other than that it was a lot of women who were often dressing in vintage clothes um, or who were really connecting with each other through what kind of Rosie talked about in um, trying to replicate looks maybe or being quite inventive or quite playful mm -hmm. with how they were dressing. Mm -hmm. um, and they, uh, I think there was a kind of, there was a shared camaraderie in um, both being interested in the fashion industry but also reveling in standing slightly outside of it too. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, 
I guess there's two ways I could come at this, if you'll humor me a bit. One is, um, in the interviews I did for my, for my research, the ways that the very earliest fashion bloggers talked about what they were doing, it sounded very much like a, a community in the sense of the blog or their, their individual blogs was the initial point of contact with one another, but bloggers would fly to each other's cities if they had the means to do that and meet up together. Um, or if a blogger was visiting the city and, or, a, or, a, or a place where another blogger lived, they would have, have a coffee date or they'd show each other the vintage shops of that area. So there was a sense of the blog being the entry into a friendship with a like-minded soul who was interested in talking about fashion the way that you were. And a lot of those very early fashion blogs were mostly written rather than featuring a lot of imagery. So it was more that bloggers were writing long-form posts about their opinions about fashion, about uh, what they wanted to see in stores or the limitations of what they could find or their interest in fashion from you know, critiquing the sustainability or the ethics of the industry. So it was a lot more kind of critical and discussion-based rather than imaging yourself. And, and I guess with style blogging, that imaging the self that had started to occur in other kinds of web platforms like LiveJournal or MySpace and the kind of clusters of fashion groups that emerged on those sites then trickled into style blogging. And at, at that point, people would send each other packages of clothes, which mm -hmm. I think happened with yes, you. Yes, which happened with me kind yeah. of several times. Um, yeah. And actually, when, sorry, when I was recovering from spinal surgery, um, which we might cover later, um, one of the things that was really extraordinary were the number of bloggers, literally from all over the world, mm. who sent me things um, as a result of that, who sent care packages, essentially. And that was an extraordinary moment of, I'd already taken some of those friendships offline, but to have some of the friendships that were primarily online mm. made tangible too was a really extraordinary thing. Mm. Absolutely. So it was a sense of the kind of, the being online and, and becoming friends offline as well, mm. that being more of a, a permeable thing perhaps, mm. that I think seemed to diminish a bit as style blogging shifted a little in its ethos, which I kind of map in my work as the kind of aesthetics and the kind of the way that style blogging is done seem to kind mm. of solidify in particular ways. Mm. Um, and I, as for diversity in other ways, I do think that um, there's much to be said about class in blogging. It's not something I really researched in my book, but I do think that access to the internet and the technologies to image yourself in particular ways depends on having disposable income, having access to in internet or a smartphone or a, a DSLR um, or having a certain amount of free time to do this or disposable income to buy clothing in particular ways. And certainly the blogs that I was seeing in the, in the early days were sort of most in the largest proportion, the young women who would be probably situated within the middle class or the upper middle class. Mm. Um, and so not necessarily buying luxury or high-end items, but certainly being able to buy new things from time to time or um, having a, a family that supported what they were doing and that kind of thing, or going to high school or going to university. So there's a kind of educational privilege, I suppose, that also feeds into the competencies that you, you're comfortable writing and in, in that way, I guess. And, and if we could stay with that sort of theme of feminism a bit more, because we're here feminists, we're all feminists, aren't we, of course. Um, <laughs> If you could comment because on, on this idea of appearing on the blog and, and maybe some of what I would say, suddenly what I witnessed was what I would call ambivalences of showing oneself, especially as a woman. So the thing that I struggled with at the beginning, still struggle with, of course, um, depends on the blogs, but this idea that it can be celebrated in the sense that style, personal style blogs, women are 
taking ownership to some extent of their own image, or are they really or not? Or has this changed? Through their own means, decided to put themselves into um, the visuals in whatever ways they want. Uh, yet at the same time, it is still part of uh, this same old logic of having to be validated through appearance, which is one of the traditional way of constructing femininity. So how do you uh, um, engage, or how do you relate to this idea of, well, same old, same old, it still is about the appearance of two gorgeous, young-looking women. Um, and so at the same time, is it indeed empowering, whatever that word means? And I think we might want to elaborate of what do we really mean by this word that is being used and abused. Um, so, and also, Ro um, uh, Rosie, your point of view as a blogger and as someone who has looked into the blogging. Mm -hmm. So, gosh, that's a really, <laughs> I don't know, a really yeah, good I don't question. Know. I'm just, it's just, just trying to think about how to frame of them. it. Yeah, sorry. Um, I don't know if I would have necessarily defined it as being empowering. I know what it certainly gave me was a certain amount of ownership of image at a point where I still felt very unconfident in a lot of areas of my life. Um, I felt like my blog and a space where I could present myself in the way that I wanted to was a very conscious division from the self that I was at school or the self that I was around peers where I felt very limited and very judged in that way that teenagers can be cruel and conformity is expected. So for me, it was, it was a form of non-conformity. But I'm aware that looking back, you know, I was modeling at this point too, and I was a very, very slender young white woman. So I don't know if I was doing anything especially it's radical. It's not a bad thing to be no. a young But I am aware yeah. that there were, it, it was possibly easier for me to be celebrated in certain ways or for certain publications to pick up on me or notice me because I fitted particular pre-established ideals. But I would still stand by the fact that it gave me access to thinking about clothes in a way that was creative and thinking about fashion in a way that wasn't limiting or necessarily about shaping myself to particular expectations, but actually having the room to fashion myself quite performatively through being silly sometimes or being ridiculous mm. or playing, literally playing at characters, dressing up as characters from books or um, from movies. So there was, there was something that felt very creative to it as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I've got so much to say about these <laughs> ideas. <laughs> I'm just like yes. going into a whole, um, I, <clears throat> okay. So I would completely agree mm. with everything Ros is saying, first of all, and I also wouldn't necessarily use the word empowering because I think it doesn't really leave room for ambivalence. It doesn't leave room for nuance. And I think um, style blogs aren't just one thing. They can be um, exciting and a, a, an exciting space for claiming what has been derided of the kind of um, feminized ways of writing the self writing about the seemingly trivial, your own life, or writing about your interest in fashion and style, which is vain, allegedly, or self-absorbed or something. So I think there's definitely something to be said there about claiming a space to say, actually, fashion and style have importance for people in different ways, and there's not, there weren't at the time many spaces where you could write about that or share experiences as a young woman or a young man who was interested in style, especially if you were living in an isolated region um, or somewhere outside of, um, the main kind of fashion capitals where, where fashion is more perhaps experimental. Mm. Um, so there's, there's ways that we could say that it's, that it's created an exciting space that was important, um, but also, like, as, you, as you recognize, that it also seems to validate particular ways of being in the world that are 
relatively prescriptive and certainly in the ways that some bloggers were taken up and celebrated by the industry you can look at a number of those individuals without taking anything away from the accomplishment of what they've achieved also recognize that there's a particular kind of aesthetic type um, particularly slender and able-bodied and young and conventionally beautiful that is sort of celebrated again and again so there were many people who were also blogging and, and making valuable contributions to discussions of fashion online that were never acknowledged mm -hmm. by Elle or never invited mm -hmm. to Fashion Week. And mm -hmm. as the style blogosphere transformed, those people increasingly began to feel that they didn't belong in a space that they had worked so hard to pioneer. Yeah. And that, that the style blogosphere being a space that accommodated different points of view was becoming increasingly homogenized. Yeah. And I certainly as a blogger felt that because I didn't feel that I was able to replicate myself aesthetically in ways that were endorsed by the kind of mainstream fashion media, I suppose. Because mm. I was very self-conscious in front of a camera and you can see in my early photos, I'm really awkward because I wasn't really comfortable with that. And I did feel like by, by imaging myself, I'm making a claim to style that I don't necessarily feel comfortable making. Because while I enjoy what I wear personally, I wouldn't necessarily say other people should dress like me or that my style is particularly interesting. I just enjoy it and I have I'd like to write about it if people are. But then playing the devil advocate, why couldn't you carry on enjoying it and doing it the way you wanted it if precisely your intention was not to be part of uh, a commercialized mainstream platform? And so what sort of, how, because you talked about, and I think it'll be interesting and we can move on to sort of now the, 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 the maybe going to the second wave because you talk about that in your book, how there are different waves, three waves of, of um, fashion blogging and you might want to tell us a bit more about that. but. What, how did you experience that transition? Did you, did you feel forced precisely? How, why can you not, could you not carry on practicing as usual? Oh, do I know? Oh. Uh, um, I think it's a very human thing. It's like wanting, it's like not wanting to be part of the cool girls because you don't actually enjoy their conversation, but you also do want to be part of their group because they're the ones who are celebrated. I think that it's very easy sometimes to also position oneself outside the mainstream or go, no, I was doing my thing. But ego also comes into it as much as anything else. And if you, you know, I, you know, very honestly, I saw other young women who had started at the same time as me, who were making serious money out of what, what they were doing or were being celebrated in particular ways. And although they weren't necessarily embodying everything I was interested in, it didn't stop, you know, yeah, my ego coming into mm -hmm. play and maybe being envious. So I think some of it is also just about acknowledging that it's a human sphere, as with everything else, and it's also a sphere that um, encouraged, especially as it was developing, um, a sense of looking at other people and comparing oneself with other people all the time. I still blog. It isn't a hugely successful part of what I do, but I, I do maintain it as a space precisely because I do think it's important to have somewhere where I can write um, that isn't edited by other people or that gives me room for thinking about things that other publications wouldn't necessarily take. Mm. But sometimes that's also, that can be quite tiring. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the time aspect of it comes into play a lot as well because when I decided to stop blogging, it, I mean, I gave it a lot of thought because I started it as a space to do my research and then that project came to a close as I finished my PhD and I thought, should I keep it going? Because I did really enjoy the yeah. space yeah. like you and um, I'd, I had a readership that was small but invested and it felt like um, somewhere that I could write for myself. So I'm not writing for my supervisor, I'm not writing for publication, it's my space. But actually also I think the other demands on your time, mm. and this gets towards academia I suppose, is your 
you know, as I finished my PhD, I had to take up um, extra works because my funding ran out, so I'm moving into a professional sphere. Um, I need to publish to be employable, and I have academic research I need to produce, so the time became quite difficult. And even as in the last 18 months of writing up my research, finding time to blog was extremely difficult. And I often would be like riding in my pajamas and I'd have like my hair in a scrappy bun and I'd just be like drinking coffee and like riding all the time. So it's not, I wasn't um, getting dressed in ways that I thought anyone would <laughs> have any interest in seeing. So if you look at my archives, the, the last sort of year is very pathetic. There's like one post every two months. Mm. Um, and so I thought it would be a, a real struggle to continue to blog and do other things I felt I needed to do. So I decided to sort of draw a line under it and let it be an archive of that student experience. Yeah. Mm. Something and talking about time, um, and again, we, there's so many things to talk about and I'm sure you will have many um, questions on that. Many of you probably are blogging. But precisely, I think, um, in terms of the time that you put into the blogging, um, I don't know if many of you are familiar with the work of uh, Brooke Duffy, who's talked about labor and blogging as labor and gendered labor. And this idea that maybe one of the problems, I'm, I'm really playing the devil advocate here, but I'm, I'm all for blogs, um, with especially personalized style blogs, and now Instagram, it looks so, so beautiful. It's hidden, hiding the labor that actually goes into and all the work. And it turns out that especially for full-time bloggers and people who want to monetize their blog, you would know more than anyone else. It is a lot of work. Um, so presenting a sort of a very glossied up image of uh, it's all very easy, it's all very um, uh, uh, facile. And again, therefore reproducing this idea that uh, uh, women's labor is not a proper labor. Mm -hmm. So could we talk about the labor and maybe moving on to how the field changed and how it became maybe something monetized and how you dealt with um, the work that you put into it and how willing you might have been to put more work into it or not? Mm -hmm. Um, yes, well, I think the question of labor is entirely tied up in this question of commodification of the blogging sphere as well, because the kind of labor that you were talking about at the beginning that often looks quite glossy or kind of tips over into the realms of influencers, for example, seems to me to be about presenting a very particular type of lifestyle that is aspirational enough that other people want to buy into it. Mm. Whereas the labor that certainly I felt existed in the early days of blogging was perhaps more visible because the articles were long yeah. and they were often, you know, they were about books or films that you'd been reading or where you'd found a particular dress in a charity shop that emulated a Prada one you'd seen last season. So there wasn't perhaps that same sense of trying to construct um, a, a particularly kind of glossy life because it was, it was more rambling, it was more fragmented, it was more, yeah, it was, it was very different. Um, I've lost the train of my thought. But well, I've yeah. actually, this reminded me of when I interviewed you for my research, mm. and I remember I asked you about how you fit everything in, and Ros said that she, um, you'd say, well, now is my time for homework, and now I have an hour of daylight left, so, you know, get Dad and get the camera, and let's get out and take some photos and stuff. So it was sort of that you had scheduled things around your other commitments, which I thought was... Oh, God, I used to be so good at that. <laughs> I'm much worse at time management these days. Um, but yes, but I think also because that was, that was a creative outlet at that point too. So although there was a professional element to it, um, it was you know, the equivalent of what other teenagers might have done in the past, I suppose, if you were keeping a diary or you were making music or you were doing anything else that also was quite energizing because it, it was a lift into a different realm or a different sphere. 
Um, so for me, at that point at least, it didn't feel hugely like labour because it was very enjoyable. I think it was probably from the point of getting to university onwards, where similarly to what Rosie was saying, time constraints change, um, financial constraints change, um, and suddenly uh, the expectation of maintaining mm. um, a certain consistency of output is less doable. Mm -hmm. And the ways that people wrote about what they were doing shifted as well. So it used to be that people would talk about how they afforded certain things. So I went to this sale and oh my gosh, I can't believe they had this stuff here. And it was, you know, and I used all my pocket money to get it. Like literally, you know, people would bring you in to the, the, what they were doing. And, yet, and as the sort of ethos shifted towards a more mm -hmm. aspirational life and more towards the kind of classic fantasy of fashion where you don't want any kind of gravity or monetary reality or limitations yeah. to enter into the, the image and the myth, then that kind of discourse dropped away and it became, um, you just have to have a pair of shoes like this. They are a must. They take me from here to here. And that's not to minimize that at all, but rather it's a different way of, of talking about fashion. Yeah. So I think that the, the labor behind sort of did move more into the backstage area to borrow Irving Goffman's language of front stage and backstage where bloggers were performing a very difficult to perform aspirational life. Yeah. Um, and, and it was only, as I mentioned in my book, it was only when bloggers who wanted to emulate that mode of blogging reached a particular level of success that they could afford to show some of the backstage work. Um, so, you know, Fashion Week has been so hectic. I've been up till 4 a.m. every night editing my photos and I was just at this wonderful Gucci party and like, I can't wait to tell you guys about it. So there's a kind of a showing of the work behind, but also not in a way that would disrupt the performance of a kind of mm. insiderness that became a very powerful currency on the mm. second wave. But isn't that also part of the, the way of, sort of showing the, 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 the work that comes behind is because blogging has become a profession yes. and the bloggers also have a state in legitimating yes. and constructing blogging as a proper profession. Yes. So now they're, and I think that's what is interesting to me in blogging is the bloggers blog about fashion, but they also blog about blogging. Yeah. Mm. And it's, a it's been a very interesting to follow for me uh, on the labor side, this process of inventing themselves and inventing the position, carving out a position, not least in the context of discussion about blogging, whether it's fashion blogging, or journalism blogging, news blogging, which has been very, very critical yeah. and dismissive of it. Well, I think it's interesting yeah. that a lot of people who rose to prominence initially through their style blog now claim other titles for the work that they do. So um, I'm an entrepreneur or I'm a social media influencer or very rarely will now someone say I'm a full-time blogger in style blogging, in my experience, because of that kind of coverage yeah. that continually questions the legitimacy of what they do. Yeah. Mm. But I think, sorry, if I can just loop back to this yeah. feminist discussion we were having earlier, part of the reason um, that I, I focused so much on women's writing in one of the chapters of the books was I really took exception to the gendered language that was being used to dismiss what bloggers were yeah. doing in my, as I was doing my research. So younger bloggers were often um, the way that they were written about in the news media was that they don't know the risks of being online, they're not aware of what they're doing, um, they don't know how silly they will look when they grow up and realise that anyone can find them on the internet, as if there was no media literacy of the people who were creating this work. When actually, when I interviewed bloggers, they had a high uh, awareness and a high level of literacy of digital technologies. So yes, I am aware that people are looking at my blog, but I also know who my readership are to some extent mm -hmm. and that it's self-selecting, that people would only really follow it if they were interested in what I was doing mm -hmm. or 
these are the strategies I employ to maintain my safety. Or, mm. So there was, a, I think, a real dismissal in the media of people's awareness, and I did read that as gendered because it was often focused on the figure of the young girl in crisis mm. rather than a, a competent person who is making a set of choices about how they're choosing to write um, write themselves into visibility. Mm. Yeah, of course. Mm. I mean, it, there's been a lot, sorry, it's, it's always a bit about the, uh, the, the the female bloggers when actually it's a lot more diversified than that. Yes. And you don't hear about the criticism of the, the, the all the boys doing their gaming blogging and right. so on. So it's always, I mean, here, you're absolutely right. I mean, I completely agree. It's, it's very, very gendered critique of a particular digital moment or digital sphere. Mm. Yes, and also what was very interesting about that critique is I feel like it took two forms because you had the kind of, you had the, the wider media at large who I think were also just quite perplexed by it mm -hmm. as well. And so would often frame it as this thing kind of going, well, it's bizarre what they're doing. But then you also had the fashion industry's critique too because there was this mm -hmm. really interesting period probably from about 2010, 2011 onwards where you saw the fashion industry really, you know, kind of embracing bloggers but also resenting them a huge amount too because there were a lot of, um, professional figures who felt like suddenly their um, their status was being uh, diminished because these young upstarts were sitting front row instead. Um, but also, just to pick up on this point about uh, privacy, I think certainly I knew that there was this huge divide between my public self and my private self. And a lot of the other young women I, I know who were blogging at the same time as me are often the most cautious <laughs> in their approach to... Uh, to how they present themselves online because they were so uh, kind of acutely aware of it from perhaps a younger age than other people. Absolutely. Because you kind of, I mean, you're making a set of choices about how to image yourself and how to write. You, you are the one creating this content, so you know what you're putting out there. Mm. And um, I think that that's, yeah, that's the other side of, of mm. the argument that never really gets focused on, mm. I guess. But the kind of myth that this is an easy life, certainly with full-time bloggers or entrepreneurs of the self is certainly a myth. And I think um, Duffy is absolutely right in her characterization of the labor often being invisible and this idea that you could become a self-made person um, simply by, you know, your stars aligning in some way rather than there, there being sort of things that are in place already that privilege certain kinds of people or certain things that you would need to sacrifice and disguise in order to succeed in a particular mm. way mm. or at least be recognized by established players in the field that have the power to endorse what you're doing, I suppose. Mm. So staying a bit longer with this idea of, of labor, I'm indulging my, <laughs> my interest here, but it's, and, and certainly with the interviews of uh, the bloggers that I've done at sort of different levels, or that's the catch-22, that's the difficulty that they're finding themselves in, in terms of the monetization of their blogs. How do you deal with that, knowing that it has indeed something that can become um, a job but that there is this idea that if, it, if you monetize your blog, you're a sellout, you lose your authenticity, you know, another word that you might want to elaborate on. Uh, so therefore, you cannot uh, monetize your blog, yet to make it work, you need time and money to do it. But the people, the readers, expect free things. So what, what is the, 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 the situation? How do you think about this idea of monetization? And also, maybe f going further about this, the, the sort of the state of regulations or non-regulations as to what is being practiced yeah. online, whether it's blogging, but also now including Instagram and so on. Mm. Mm. So uh, again, that's a really good wide question. Yeah. Um, certainly in terms of monetization, I think the, the word authenticity is so crucial there because 
I feel like the conversation has developed again even in the last few years because I think there was this idea that it was fine to work with brands if they somehow aligned with what you'd already developed as your particular image or your particular style. And when I used to make money out of my blog, that was certainly the approach I took, which was that because I wrote quite a lot about sustainability and about the ethics of fashion, as and where I could, I wanted to make sure that the brands that I worked with aligned with mm. um, my message to a certain extent. But I think it's, it's changed so vastly since that point, and I often feel like I end up defending it when actually I also find it quite reprehensible sometimes too that the regulations are not followed um, in, you know, the FTC have all sorts of regulations about what you're meant to disclose if you are being paid to uh, wear a certain item of clothing or praise it. But there are guidelines on there. They're not there and sort of there's a lot of possible ways of getting away without it. They're not doing it. How, how serious how effective are they in maybe also uh, getting towards more transparency hmm. in the field? Um, I mean, I don't know about it in the UK, but certainly from what I understand in the US, it is actually a legal requirement yeah. as well. Um, but there is a, there's a lot of gray area there yeah. too. Um, and you see it in very basic ways now in terms of the requirement to hashtag things as being ad on Instagram or whatever else. But because it was so new at that point, I think it was also it was a kind of this frontier that everyone was busy trying to negotiate because suddenly all these brands are going, we'll have free stuff or you know, we'll pay you to do this. So it, it didn't have the same sense of business that it has now because it was still novel a lot of the time and it was because it was self-made. Um, I'm rambling. I'm going to let you no, pick I up. No, I don't think you are at all. <laughs> but I guess sort of one other way to karma authenticity, which I... I find, oh look, I'll, I'm gonna park that, I'll come back to that. Um, what I was starting to say was, I think there's also a way that the recognition of respected fashion media outlets or brands can almost traffic, well, a kind of cultural capital or an acknowledgement that makes a blogger, I don't know if authentic is the right word, but certainly raises their own cultural capital on the blogosphere. So if you are one of the 30 bloggers invited by Chanel in 2009 to come on this junket that they did, instantly everyone else on the Star Blogosphere knows who you are because you were like one of the chosen few that were flown in from around the world. And I think there's still that element now, even as the um, some aspects of the blogosphere have become so commercialised, there is prestige in working with particular brands. And if you know, if you've styled Yeezy show like, um, you know, an Australian blogger Margaret Zhang has done, the kinds of opportunities that will bring you and the kind of respect and credibility within the professional industry mm. are very powerful. Mm. And so I th it, it may not be one thing in all instances in terms of authenticity or what is to be gained from this and what is potentially to be compromised. Mm. But I certainly think if you were blogging from a kind of a first wave ethos of I'm sharing something about my private being in the world, the sense that I make of fashion as a private individual and kind of trying to mediate that with a kind of a commercial entrepreneurial element, there is, it rises a kind of a tension or a discomfort there that I saw a lot of people trying to navigate. Um, and there used to be a, an, uh, it's not an ad, um, an icon that you would put in the sidebar of your blog. It was a little owl and it said, this is an ad-free blog. Oh gosh, I remember and that. bloggers would yes. deliberately flag in, before the FTC released this regulation in the United States, that you know this is an ad-free space, and there was a kind of pride in, in wearing that icon. Mm -hmm. But that sort of 
disappeared without mm. further notice um, mm. as the blogosphere continued to develop. And I, yeah, I don't know if it's been reconciled since necessarily. But the brands as well, I mean, it's suddenly some, some of the bloggers were saying that the brands didn't really know how to work with, uh, with bloggers and also were expecting systematically free labor. Um, precisely, I mean, you know, it's cool to be able to go on a trip to Chanel, but Chanel could afford to pay those people to do the work. Right. So that Chanel, you know, got away with knowing that it would bring symbolic capital to the, uh, to the bloggers. So, so that's again something that I was interested in, in witnessing, having do, done some follow-up with the, the bloggers, that they're really fed up with that. Mm. Uh, and they don't want free ge freebies anymore because they've had enough as well. And they want it to become a normal uh, 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 profession. And I don't know if that's an experience or something you have a knowledge of. The thing that now the, br the brands themselves know how to work and have acknowledged that there is proper labor going into it and that they shouldn't exploit in a way also because that's where that's another kind of catch 22 where the bloggers find themselves stuck in where they have to be authentic they have to make a living they're not being paid where do they get the money and so on so mm, mm. well i saw that more with um, street style bloggers recently during the last fashion month cycle where a number of street style bloggers got together and declared that they were no longer going to let fashion media outlets use their photographs without yeah, being paid right. for it. And there yeah, was a hashtag, yeah. wasn't there? It wasn't yeah, no yeah. free photographs or something. Yeah. Um, so I haven't seen that as much on the on the style blogger sphere, but I could understand why people would would feel that way. Would feel, but again, I feel like it's so hard sometimes because I feel like it, it, because it developed so rapidly, mm. there was that was that first point where brands were going, oh, bloggers are a thing we need to do, you know, in the way that I think, you know, actually see some brands still quite cluelessly going, influencers are a thing we need to mm. do. We don't quite understand how to do it, but we're going to throw some money at them. Mm. Um, so I think a lot of it is also about how brands have then um, refined and uh, kind of changed their approaches to working with people with mm. kind of very visible audiences mm. as well. And you know, when we were blogging, that was something they were still figuring out. And I think that there was probably, I think advantage was probably taken on both sides. I think there were amazing opportunities that were afforded to bloggers um, that wouldn't be given to those people now, but also there were brands absolutely taking advantage of people who were still figuring out their commercial value mm. too. So I think it was, it was kind of, it went both ways. Yeah. And not to sound naive, but there was also, like if you're really, if you like, if you're a fashion fan, if you really like a, a fashion label and think what they do is really cool, and they reach out to you and say, we think what you do is really cool, we'd love to send you some things, or we'd love you to come and interview our designer or something, the excitement of that jump at the chance. it was so exciting and even as readers like that never happened to me but i i followed blogs for years where it happened to those bloggers and even as a reader i was so excited mm. like i remember when um tavi gevinson made a rap about going to h&m the first day that the collaboration with comme de garçon was released and it was really funny because she's hilarious and um in it she described grabbing a jacket and someone tearing it out of her hands and this was like the crisis moment of the song and actually someone from H&M's office in Sweden uh, emailed her and said we'd like to send you some things we love because the post kind of went viral in that the 
not viral in the sense it would now, but at the time was a big deal. So they sent her a package of clothes, including this jacket. So she did a follow-up post where she was wearing it and hugging herself. And the title of the post was like random caps locks, like she'd just gone rah on the, on the keyboard. And as a reader, I remember being like, oh, Tommy, that's so cool. Like, good for you. Like, that's H&M are clever. Well, they're yeah. very clever. I mean, coming back to their strategy, absolutely clever. Yeah. And yeah. she had a huge following already at that time. So it's not just, yeah, yeah, yeah. but maybe, yeah. So yeah. there was certainly a sense of, um, of excitement as yeah. well. Mm. And it's a tricky one as always with the kind of what Angela McRobie called passionate work. Right. Mm. Because, yeah, there's self-exploitation, exploitation by others, but yet still, that's the problem. We do it because we love it. Yeah. Um, it's not work, it's, it's a hobby. And that's when it becomes really tricky yeah. for all these issues of, well, how do you deal with the kind of self-exploitation? Or suddenly the count that I heard a lot from the bloggers is attending the fashion weeks you know, they don't get paid like the journalist attached to a journal would, uh, so they have to pay for the flight themselves, which means that only who's already have some money can go. So it means, okay, who are the bloggers who are going to reporting on what? So we're coming back maybe to the class issue. Who's who cannot afford to, to, to travel, who do not have a partner, family, or whatever to do that will not be part of this kind of uh, a fashion, new form of fashion writers. Yes. Mm. So there's here still a problem with, to some extent, the lack of. Uh, uh, a transparency in what money goes where and how and who should pay what, which has some social repercussions, I would say. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. And also then, you know, follows through into, say, the bloggers who could then afford to wear particular items of clothing that would garner them attention from street style photographers yeah. as well, because there was a shift in street style photography yes. from kind of anyone having photos taken of them, you could have bought something for a pound yeah. from a bargain bin and uh, they there would be a lot of attention drawn to yes. that through to the point where actually often, you know, street style photographers were even told to look out for certain designers or items and so having money gives you an immediate form of cultural cachet yes. and an immediate in into yeah. the forms of visibility that were then being yeah. celebrated. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I'm conscious of time and you probably have many questions to ask, but I'm going to ask the one question, which is my bugbear, and I'm still not finding ways of really tackling it, but it's this word influencer, mm. which really bothers me, which I can't, so for so many different reasons. So how do you feel about that word influencer? Oh, gosh. Uh, maybe you like it and convince me. Maybe it's <laughs> useful, maybe it's a, it's, it's a positive alternative to blogger, maybe there's something constructive, useful, I don't know, but I just, I'm not. It's quite a vague word, I think, because it assumes a lot. It assumes that influence can be measured and sort of tied to a person, rather than that there being multiple trends and strands of influence circulating in a cultural space all the time. It assumes, I think, also a kind of monologic relationship from influencer towards the person who's engaging with what they're doing, um, that you might, you might wholesale take on the presentation of self and what they're endorsing and that would impel you to act in particular ways where I think consumption is a lot more nuanced than that. Mm. The ways that we read um, the work of the people that we're talking about, digital entrepreneurs of the self or cultural intermediaries or bloggers, what have you. Mm. It's, you know, I think we're quite sophisticated at, at reading what people are doing and so that idea of they may have influence, yes, but more influence than me loving Rosa's dress and thinking, I, oh, pinafore dress. <laughs> like, maybe I should be looking into that. that you know what I mean? So it's sort of, um, I think it yeah, makes something concrete that's actually a bit more ambiguous. 
Yeah, I would agree with that, but I think even just the etymology of it is interesting too, because to you know, to wield influence is you know, when we're talking about influencers, we are essentially talking about people who have a lot of peop other people who. Well, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Are we? Because there was an article actually this morning in the business of fashion, precisely who and what and according what to what criteria? Because they are saying now. Yeah. Actually, the so-called big influencers, it doesn't look like there's return on investment. Yes. So let's move towards the micro-influencer, which right. is yet another problematic term. But yeah. so, okay. No, it's funny enough, I was going to okay. take it in that direction. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I think that certainly the, the general conception of it is people with a large audience. But I think especially brands are also rising mm. up to the fact that having a smaller engaged audience is more valuable than a large disinterested mm. audience and that numbers doesn't necessarily mm. equal investment um, in what someone recommends. Mm. But I find, it, I find it quite intriguing and I also find it quite disquieting. I, don't, I, I go round and round in circles with how I, how I feel about it and how I feel about this this notion of essentially often selling um, a, a version of one's life um, to an audience um, and making money out of that by your um, your choice and your tastes having a particular value. And I, I honestly don't know how I feel. I feel like I change from day to day and whether I think mm. that's uh, positive or negative. Mm. Yeah. I wonder if it seems like we're at a, at a moment where there's a bit of fatigue about the aesthetic as well, the mm. performance of the aspirational life that kind of travels the world with ease and, and assumes luxury items or very expensive clothing without there being any barriers. And I think that uh, the rise of alternative aesthetics in sort of different kinds of fashion brands presenting very small, you know, models with freckles, say, or people with, um, you know, people who aren't models even, but, you know, they're fans of the brand, like Regina Pio's casting of her London Fashion Week show recently, or Reformation's casting of, like, the cool girls of internet that they find, or Mariam Nassazada in New York um, casting friends of hers. There's a, a kind of desire for seeing less polished images of people, I think, that might, but might be twisting influences somewhere else. I'd say those kinds of brands mm. are... I think more influential in terms of fashion aesthetics at the moment and the, and the kind of ideas of coolness or alternativeness, even though it's still a very kind of homogenous look in many ways. Mm. But the kind, I wonder how much traction the kind of hyper-glossy influencer dream world still has because it's, it's been in currency for a number of years now and it seems like, mm. at least from talking to my students, that people are kind of getting a bit tired of it. Now they Victoria's Secret still selling a lot. They are. <laughs> so maybe it's really just very, uh, a niche pool of people. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Just mm. Okay, so maybe on that note, and because there's many of you here, over to you. Questions, comments, and Dakan is going to run around up and down. <laughs> Hi. Um, my question was actually about that last um, comment. Um, do you think that these kind of glossy lifestyles are realistic and present an accurate depiction of the bloggers that are presenting this lifestyle and themselves and who they are. Do you think that's realistic for them? Like, uh, I'm trying to explain this quite. Do you think it's realistic for them or realistic in general or just a bit like, who, who are you kidding? Like, we all know that this is a facade, as it were. I think it probably depends partly on the individual that you're looking at. There are some for whom I think the version of themselves that they present probably does quite neatly align with their life. 
Um, but I also think that almost to kind of wrap it back up in this is this word authenticity. Um, we uh, we're still kind of negotiating the fact that on the internet people are tend to be presenting kind of very specific parts of themselves and for influencers, um, you know, micro or however else, um, there is uh, there is a tendency to emphasise the most positive, the most positive and the most glossy and the most beautiful parts of their lives because they know that's what sells. I don't think that's realistic. I think actually there are so many conversations there to have about aspiration and body image and what we tell young women they should aspire to um, and money. Um, I think that you can really admire um, often kind of, well, they're not always self-made, but sometimes self-made women who've done amazing things just using their phone or their laptop. But I think that we should also have wider conversations about how uh, comparison can make us feel awful too and that often those who are celebrated do fit pretty normative ideals. Don't know if that is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think that distinction you're making between that that presentation of a life isn't always, the claim being made about that life isn't always that this is real life, if mm. whatever we define real life as. So for some people, yes, it, it may correlate very closely with their lived experience, but I feel like for most style bloggers and, and Instagrammers who are performing that kind of aspirational life, I always, I think the language of performance is really useful here. I, I think when you try to identify authenticity, it's difficult to unpack because these are people doing those things. They're in Mallorca, dressed in Valentino, like that was something that that person did that day, even though we don't know about the circumstances and that kind of thing. Uh, but the language of performance helps us think about how you might draw particular elements of your lived experience and foreground that at the front of stage or that you might put on makeup in a particular costume and you're performing something. And that's not to suggest that that is completely inauthentic, it's just, just a character or something, but that it's a role that you're fulfilling in a particular context. And I do think if you are seeking to place yourself as an individual in that aesthetic on Instagram, then to succeed and be visible in that realm, you have to be able to perform in particular kinds of ways. And that's very much endorsed by followers and so forth. So I think that kind of language I always found useful to critique what's going on rather than trying to re reconcile something with uh, someone's lived experience. Because I also think that that is, like Rosie's identifying, that's not the claim that these individuals are making. It's not a tell-all confessional or a diary of their daily life. Mm. And I think on a smaller scale, um, we probably, well, no, not all of us, but many people do use social media in this way. I certainly, well, as I referenced before, I wouldn't put po pictures of myself in my pajamas online or something like that, but I wear them every day. So that choice that you're making, it's a, it's a way of engaging with a medium that affords particular ways of being visible. Mm. And, um, and also rewards particular exactly. ways of being visible too, um, and that rewards the most glamorous or interesting or exciting parts, yes. essentially. Yes, yeah. People. There's one over there. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask a question about fitness and gym culture because so far it seems like when you talk about fashion blogging, we, you mean um, bodies that present themselves clothed in haute couture or branded items. But I'm wondering if you could speak about those bodies, right? Because the clothes aren't just presenting themselves in hangers. Um, and so I'm wondering what, what is, might be the relationship between what you've been speaking about and the productions of the bodies themselves. Because basically, can fitness blogging um, or the presentation of the, f the gym culture 
body in social media also count as um, fashion blogging, right? Mm. Mm. Well, they're not naked, are they? They're wearing stuff. Sportswear, so that's, I mean, that's yeah. fashion. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'd say it's probably a, a sort of a subgenre of the fashion blogosphere, um, and there are many of those, and absolutely, and I think the point you're making about the body is really important because obviously we fashion our bodies as well and clothing is animated by our body selves and it's a reciprocal kind of clothes. Um, so absolutely would class them as part of this, although we haven't been really talking about that mm. today. Mm. But maybe also there's more crossover now if we're talking specifically about Instagram, um, where I think the lines have also blurred between what we define as being a fashion blogger, a lifestyle blogger, a fitness blogger, um, and also because a lot of the bodies that are celebrated do fit a very particular ideal, which um, is often a body that you know, is worked out, that is toned, that, um, that is slender, um, that is able-bodied. Um, so I think that's also part and parcel of this general question, perhaps, of um, who we celebrate now um, and who, who is the most visible. Yes. And I think that that idea touches on the competences of the contemporary self, that we're expected to be able to perform our individuality in particular ways, um, to attain levels of fitness or to have particular capabilities that we're all supposed to just have. And I think part of that is the valorization of being able to be well and healthy and fit and that that be an effortless thing. And I do think that that effortlessness is also something we see on more fashion-based style blogs that you should be able to inhabit the, the slender, young fashion ideal without it being difficult for you at all in any way, and that that's kind of what's endorsed, it seems. And I think that idea, it's another kind of invisible labor. Mm. We see ourselves as something to be worked upon, and yeah, that's And often troubling. something to be improved, essentially, or something yeah. that we should mark ourselves against or measure ourselves against and feel that we're lacking, yeah. I feel. Hi, so um, my question is that blogging has been here for a while now, but it still receives a lot of criticism from established or professional fashion journalists who carry a certain sense of cultural capital, obviously, and they've come a long way through the most traditional path. And I don't know if you know, but last, I mean, last uh, year during Fashion Week, Vogue journalists spoke about um, bloggers being pathetic, and there was this whole article, and there was a lot of backlash. But the main thing that sort of struck me was how they blamed them for wearing head-to-toe paid outfits. And Susie Bubble lashed out, saying that they're just doing the more overt equivalent of the advertorial system in publications. So what would be your thoughts on this? And is that being uh, hypocrisy? Is that hypocrisy, or is that? Could you just elaborate on that? Yeah. It's a really good question. It is. Um, Oh gosh, I don't even know where to start with that one. I'm thinking about that. Yeah, well, I completely agree with what Susie Bubble said. And um, actually, it's quite funny because Vogue blogged that response. I thought it was quite ironic that they were critiquing bloggers in the very space that bloggers pioneer, I suppose. But the, um, yeah, it seems that there's a cyclical critique of the work of fashion bloggers. And I see it as a struggle for legitimacy, which Agnes has written about as well in, in the kind of after the work of Bourdieu, thinking about possibly the field of fashion media as a site of struggle for established players to um, maintain their positions of dominance so that a fashion critic is in a better position to 
comment upon the work of the fashion industry than a blogger and that the presence of a blogger might threaten to delegitimize the work of that individual by replacing them or something. So there's a kind of attention that arises there. So I see that critique more as a kind of struggle over territory and who gets to, s to speak about fashion in what kinds of ways rather than um, a, a critique based in something that's new because I, I do agree with Susie's assessment of the situation um, and I guess that loops us back to sponsored content in a way that um, fashion magazines, or at least mainstream ones, most of what you see has been paid to be there in one way or another. Mm. People being flown um, to be the guests of brands and writing feature articles on them or product being placed in editorials because of the um, relationship that the advertiser might have, that they bought a certain amount of pages so therefore we want this amount of product in the issue for the next few months. Mm. So there's certainly not an autonomy in, in at least mainstream fashion magazines about the content that they include. Um, Which is something that Lucinda Chambers spoke very openly about yes. just after she was let go from Vogue too, about having to put particular designers on the cover that she wasn't interested in, but that were paying enough money that they had to be uh, kind of foregrounded. Yes, mm. and, the, and the threat that that posed, I thought was so fascinating with the, the backlash of um, the editor of Vestoy that published this article having to retract certain statements because of threatened legal action by Vogue UK and so that kind of the invisibility and the maintenance of the facade of we're speaking knowledges out of our professional expertise and our cultural capital mm. rather than there being other things at stake whereas I think for bloggers um, given the more this might be an assumption but possibly more of an awareness amongst the audience of that blogger that they're being sponsored in particular ways that that work or that relationship's more visible, perhaps in ways that in the mainstream fashion media is, is less visible for a, for a general reader. Mm. Well, also because you've got the difference essentially between uh, looking at specific individuals and looking at big corporations too, and we kind of, we expect it of corporations, but I don't, it, it's very different if you're looking at specific people and their commercial choices and the ways in which they're presenting themselves um, as a brand, but on a kind of, on a singular level rather mm. than as part of a bigger organization. Yes. And what was so funny, I thought, about that was once um, Leandro Medine of Man Repeller and Brian Boy also spoke back in blog posts about this critique. And uh, certain, certain staffers of Vogue said, oh, we didn't mean you guys. Like, we meant all those other bloggers, the kind of the really vain, annoying ones. And I thought it was really interesting that kind of some, some bloggers have kind of transitioned into a space where their work is... Uh, respected and validated, their writing is invited by particular publications and so forth, um, but there's this kind of imagined thread of the vapid fashion blogger in a ridiculous outfit parading around, um, and yet the same criticism isn't necessarily made of editors for those publications who also wear really inventive and, and exciting outfits. So, yeah, it's the, the fierceness of that language was interesting. That, yeah, mm. anyway. Um, I got a few points. Um, firstly, on the um, question of um, professional journalists vis-a-vis uh, -vis bloggers, I think that um, a lot of the magazines um, are now um, not just vehicles for advertising, but also they've become associated with retailing themselves. And um, likewise with uh, like the news media, um, they actually run their own like retail outlets online and they have therefore had to turn their journalists into effectively bloggers. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, they also will be getting freebies and everything. Um, secondly, I have um, written my own blog starting from about 2008, um, one of which was for my own um, online shop, um, and then sort of independently on other um, things. And uh, it, there was one point when I started being invited to these events where companies would ask a number of bloggers to come along, as many as they could possibly get, and they would give out free things. And um, I remember there was one with some sportswear. And the things that I was given, I didn't actually like them at all. And I found it very difficult because um, my style of writing is kind of rather in a sort of like I don't know, jokey, sort of critical sort of way. I found it quite difficult because I didn't know what to say about that. And I wonder if you know you have ever been in that sort of position yourselves. Um, and then finally, the, the word influencer. I actually I feel ashamed because I think one of the words I've got on my LinkedIn profile is that I'm an influencer. And I, I for me, I kind of associate it with being a kind of trendsetter and somebody who's inspirational to other people. And I hadn't really associated it with kind of um, purposefully trying to influence people to buy things. Uh, but maybe I should re review that <laughs> immediately. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that, that point about uh, trying to reconcile one's own tone of voice or one's own kind of developed style of writing with um, then suddenly having almost kind of intrusions is the wrong word, but expectations maybe from brands is certainly something I found quite difficult. It's probably why I didn't do that much commercial content because I also tended to feel quite limited the minute that I knew that it wasn't just me doing it for myself and my audience, um, but there were, you know, there were brand executives or whoever else looking at it and expecting something from it. But I think that was that particular point did feel quite nebulous too because as we were kind of talking about earlier I think it was this strange thing of standing outside the fashion industry but also feeling quite excited to have the fashion industry pay some attention but then also not quite know how to negotiate that if it didn't fit in with what we were interested in um, so it was it was definitely something I found a kind of a quite odd process yeah and I, I can definitely relate to your experience as well. I went to a launch of swimmable underwear once. That was in Sydney, so, you know, I guess that's... Because the, the whole conceit was you wear the underwear under your clothes and then you can go to the beach after work and have a swim kind of thing, which actually, you know, you get to do when you live in Sydney and it's actually pretty amazing. But I went there and I got a set... They asked, they asked what my like, dress size was and stuff and the gift was they gave, they gave everyone a set of this. And I remember getting it and then I was like, I can't can't wear this online like I'm not putting a picture of myself in a bikini like no but um, it was this funny moment because I had gone to this launch this breakfast for it and we'd had the founder of the company tell us she was so passionate about it but they didn't have any images for us the idea was that we would image ourselves in the product um, and actually yeah I had this moment of like I, I just I'm not going to do that but I felt bad about it because I'd been their guest so I had a sense of obligation mm. um, but actually I think I took a photo of it in the box and put it on, which was a terrible, like it's not interesting to look at, but I felt like I need to do something. But uh, yeah, it's sort of, it, yeah, it was difficult. Mm. Yeah. Um, this might be a little bit of a digression, but Rosie, you have an essay that talks about dreaming through codes. Um, I'm sorry, I can't remember the title of it. But you talk about the idea of dreaming through clothes, through consumption and wearing. 
And then I'm intrigued sort of how talking about this um, like blogging and influencer um, sort of thing, I'm, I'm putting like Instagram and YouTube bloggers into blogging here for just for the sake of it. But whether you feel that the way that um, bloggers put these clothes up and whether it can come back round to the first con sorry, consumption of dreaming through clothes. So you yeah. say when you talk about how someone can, um, like you say about the Patti Smith um, jacket or shirt, I can't remember, sorry. Leather pants. Um, whether if yeah. you blog about that, if someone can see it as well and if that just comes back to consumption, so whether it's not so much of a bad thing, I suppose I'm asking. When you say the bad thing, do you mean someone buying something because they saw it on a blog? No, just the um, the idea that people say, oh, you know, influencers, the bad, I just feel like they have quite a bad reception yeah. of just advertising their lives and then expecting people to buy into it, I suppose. So if that, whether it is a bad thing, because essentially we all sort of do it anyway, just not yeah. from people who aren't famous for particular things. That's a great question. I think we sound really critical in a way um, when we talk about influencers, and I think that comes through in your last comment as well. Um, and I, I guess as a, a researcher, I wouldn't want to shut anything down and say this doesn't have value or more being interested in teasing apart what the meaningfulness is for that person and what kind of effects it's having, I suppose. And I think you make a great point that when we encounter the fashion image, it is an invitation in some ways to, to dream into the qualities of the figure and, and the way they are appearing in their clothes. And I think part of what makes wearing similar, oh sorry, similar kinds of clothes powerful is that you have, you can sometimes have a sense of yourself uh, almost as if you're embodying what the figure you've encountered or imagined embodies, even though, as I write about in that piece, you know you don't physically resemble them at all. Um, but your experience of yourself and the ways that we imagine ourselves into being in some ways through our clothing is, um, Yes, it's, it's part of our lived experience in clothes. And one thing I found really interesting, I guess, to tie it back to Roz's work, was when I was looking at how bloggers wrote about their clothes and were imaging themselves, it seemed that style blogs also functioned as a space to have that kind of exploration and come at yourself in particular ways. So uh, this being a space to experiment with different kinds of looks or to explore imaginatively the meaningfulness of clothes in my lived experience. Mm. And one thing that I observed with Rosa's scholarly address post, which I think was the, f the first moment I discovered your yeah. blog, was um, the ways that, and this might be weird because you're sitting right here, That's but fine. Rosa's <laughs> kind of creating a space to come at her embodied self and the ways that she felt about having severe curvature of her spine through making a dress that mapped that spine. And it was almost like the dress was the interface for Ros to encounter her embodied self and it was an imaginative and a creative act, but also an embodied one mm. that allowed for some kind of grappling and possibly negotiation of self. Yes, absolutely. And I think, well, it's funny often thinking about this because I, at the time I just went, there's something I've been concealing on my blog for six months. Um, I need to uh, announce that I'm going to be offline for quite a while because I'm having spinal surgery. I really like Alexander McQueen. Alexander McQueen did a spine dress. Great, I'll do something very imaginative in response because to me it would feel weird to do it without it being an outfit post. But I think Rosie is absolutely right in her analysis that it was, looking back, I can see that it was, it was a very imaginative approach to trying to kind of, yes, grapple with also a body that I was finding really difficult. But also just to pick up on your point about dreaming and imagination, I entirely agree and to a certain extent it's why I would like to see our imaginative sphere widened in who we think about being influencers, because so often I feel 
maybe some of the critique comes down to the fact that we are presented very particular ways of being and looking that tend to be relatively limited. And I think that the imaginative freedom of clothes, that aspect of dreaming, is the most important part. And it shouldn't be, uh, it shouldn't be exclusive to looking uh, one particular way, essentially. Definitely. Hi, thank you. Um, I remember both of you said that you described the feelings you had when you first kind of discovered a, a blog, when you first were interested in them. I was wondering now with, you know, so many bloggers being paid, like we've all said, do you still have that feeling of excitement? And do you still read those original blogs if they're continuing? And if you do start reading a new blog, do you think, oh, you know, it's not the same or you lack something now? I, to be honest, I don't really read any of the blogs that I began reading at that point. Some of them are still going, some of them aren't. I still read a lot of the writing of people who maybe started at that point and then took it off in other areas. So like me, either they took it through into journalism or other forms of writing, or they employed those skills elsewhere. I still get the same amount of excitement from clothes, but I think as an adult woman rather than a teenage girl, it's a different form of excitement that manifests itself in other ways because I, w I was blogging from a tiny village on you know, the border of Wales, and for me, that was access into another world that felt very, very far away. And now I think that I exist in a different world. What I look for and what I find inspiring has just changed as, as a result. Yeah, it's the same for me as well. And I think what I, what I really loved about the early blogs was I loved the stories that people were telling about the everyday and the ways that people were getting creative and kind of going to the studio of the fashion college that they studied at 10 minutes early to take a photo in there because the lighting was good. And, and then talking about, you know, I dressed in this particular way because I'm fighting a cold at the moment and, and this is kind of how I put stuff together. And that kind of story of getting dressed I found fascinating and I still do. But I feel like those stories are not as easily findable, yeah. if that's a word, on the blogosphere anymore. And so I love when I find those stories, but I find them more in books like Women in Clothes or uh, from time to time in things like Lenny Letter or Tiny Letter, where people are writing uh, in that way about clothing, uh, or in, in academic writing, when people are theorizing fashion in ways that I find really exciting. So, and like Rosalind, I do follow the work of a lot of those early bloggers. And I think it's really incredible that so many of the people who were blogging in that time have gone on to have professional careers in the industry, but not as sort of the face of anything, but as writers, as editors, as professional fashion illustrators, and even Rosa is a, an yeah. example of this. And I think that, as you said, when I interviewed you, the practice of writing every day is an incredible discipline, knowing that people are going to read your writing. The, the ways that shapes you as a writer or shapes your writerly voice is really profound. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like there was a, a generation of early bloggers who wrote every day for an invested audience for years mm -hmm. and ended up sort of um, developing that skill into other forms of writing that, that, that have been very successful. So like Garcia, who works for uh, Refinery29 now, and she was with Lenny Letter before, or Arabelle Sicardi, who's the beauty editor at BuzzFeed, Tavi, of course, um, with Rookie and her, her many, many things she does, and you. So that's, that's been quite cool to see as a, as a um, reader, I guess, and sort of cheer them on from afar. Right, we have time for one more question. Um, I guess it's more of a couple of comments than a specific question, but you were talking about um, 
bloggers sort of being fed up with freebies and the idea of labor and micro influencers um so i guess i've just got a couple of comments but if there's anything you could kind of say back uh, at the moment i'm looking at how i guess influencers and bloggers and digital entrepreneurs are impacting um, students who study on fashion programs um, and kind of having interviewed a, a, a couple of students of mine what i found is that brands brands have found quite a savvy way of um, connecting with them by basically calling them brand ambassadors mm. um, and to become a brand ambassador you need to have uh, a following of at least 2,000 people and what these brands do is they will not necessarily give you a freebie they'll give you credit obviously to purchase goods which you then post or blog about and they retweet you so it's almost like you're not an ambassador because they're not champion championing you you're not working with the brand but you will post on your site and then they'll they'll retweet it um and what i'm finding quite interesting is that actually in response or i guess as a kind of in terms of labor what these brands are then doing are offering these um ambassadors to come in and do workshops which they give and they're kind of schooling them on social media so i'm sort of wondering you know for these kind of young young students of mine is it labor or i mean they seem to they think it's great and they're, they're having a great time but to be given a workshop or, or to kind of um have a i guess a, a session on like journalism it's all very much related to that brand but i think they are kind of focusing on not so much the sort of glossy influences of tens of thousands of followers who are not relatable but sort of this kind of younger audience um and also what you were saying earlier is I think when you both started out blogging, you were talking about how it was kind of a creative output and this idea of writing and kind of researching and, and definitely now it's, a, it's an image-based um, idea. But I think what, what kind of concerns me is whether these ambassadors now, I guess are kind of losing that or don't have that sort of creative output. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have any comments on that but I just think it was kind of quite interesting in terms of how brands are now sort of reaching this this audience and I guess the lack of creative output mm. well I, th I it feels like so much of it is now as you know as you like brilliantly that's a perfect example of the fact that the imperative is so often commercial now in a way that it can still be about image making but it does feel it feels a lot more aligned with just thinking about the making of money and the selling of things um, and participating in uh, branding exercises and also you know I think we also live in a culture that's slightly different in terms of how much visibility is validated and how brands approaching you gives you a cultural cachet on your Instagram and everything else so it if I'm honest I do think it, it feels a little bit poorer creatively than than the experience I had and I'm actually really grateful that I could blog at the point where I did because I don't I don't think I would have been able to do it in the same way where I you know, a few years younger now, because there was a space that opened up for that that I don't that has changed and shifted since that point, um, and possibly gives less room for the just the untrammeled freedom to write and feel out ideas and probably not be that good at writing, but really enjoy it and connect with other people. I don't think that exists in the same way. Yeah, I think it's such a fascinating example, and I find that kind of um, the reciprocity of it and the way 
you know, that the, the students that you're talking to are, are loving the opportunity and it's advantageous for the brands. And so there could almost be the sense of like, well, it's great for us, it's great for them, we're all great. But actually, I'm wondering what are the kind of repercussions? What happens if one of the brand ambassadors posts a photo that they don't like? Or um, is there any sense in which a person could transgress or a person could have autonomy about how they choose to represent this product? Or is it incredibly prescribed so that you, you have to do it in a particular way to maintain that partnership. And I think that that kind of, the ways that the, the commercial contract might limit you, it's interesting to think about the ways that you're limited in other kinds of professions about what's appropriate and what's expected of you. But if it's kind of couched in a language of you're an ambassador and you're a partner, it seems more open than you're an employee, you know. Um, but it seems like there's possibility for there that to be that edge as well. Mm -hmm. It'd be interesting to kind of ask there's, about that. I mean, there's definitely sort of limitations. There's definitely kind of constraints. Um, I think probably some of the issues are that I actually are, you know, are finding kind of young students who are feeling that they don't necessarily need need to develop to develop their education. And, and you know, if you have kind of exited because they've found this link or this relationship with brands and they feel like, well, actually, I'm kind of an entrepreneur and I'm, I'm sort of self-starting and actually I can kind of go off and, and, and make my own way. And I think that's um, an individual choice. But then I think brands, if brands have a certain responsibility, then if they are saying that they're schooling um, these students and they're inviting them in for workshops or teaching, then maybe there's a, there's a level of responsibility there. Yeah, I would support that, I think. It is yeah. also part of a wider problem with the yeah. fashion industry. They do a lot of free labor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Free internships. Mm. And, um, and I think it is highly problematic when it is incorporated into the curriculum that actually we're students now, you have to pay like, what, 9,000 plus to come and study. And on top of that, you're going to work for free for mm. brands. Yeah. So it is. And in a way, that's when I realized that you know, it's a problem that we could always say, yeah, it's a problem with neoliberalism, capitalism. As soon as capitalism sees creative possibility, then it becomes commodified and it's emptied its, of its creativity. Yet at the same time, maybe there's some situations where the commercialization of, of um, the, or the commodification of the relationship um, can be a good thing rather than a bad thing. In that sense, I think there should be an exchange of money to reward the students for whatever job and work they're doing. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a problem with, you know, as much as I would embrace um, Marx's studies of, you know, it's all, um, you know, this commodification and capitalism is always bad. What is the alternative? And to some extent, certainly in, in, uh, in, the, in the work of the bloggers that I interviewed, well, actually selling one's work is not always necessarily bad because it's also a way of achieving and, uh, and getting the transparency mm. that will make it clear that, well, yeah, the big brands do have, you know, they have it easy in that respect. And that there's something skewed in expecting yet again more free work from uh, the people. And there are pleasures to be had in it as well. It's all kind of knotted together, I yeah. think, that you, you can enjoy work and do something that you're passionate about, but also there be things that you struggle with or yeah. and it's sort of all all twisted in together but uh, brands should not abuse this passion no, yeah no, it's not because right. it's passion that it should go free yes yeah. or, you know you need to eat yeah. and uh, so I think there is 
corporate responsibility uh, that's not being yeah. stepped onto and acknowledged. And especially in the creative industries, as yes. always, we know that it's, it is exploited right, left and center and the fashion industry. Yeah. Especially because isn't it the case that the kind of millennial generation are seen as almost a cash cow, you know, reach them and you're gonna, yeah. and so that perfectly coincides with the demographic of undergraduate students. So there's a sense in which, in what ways is that a corporate opportunism to kind of, mm to get in with their target market under the guise of an educational opportunity. Mm. Well, also because they lose relatively little by doing it, the onus is placed on the side of the students and on the people producing the content or trying to sell things to their fellow students. Those are the ones who take on the responsibility and also the outfall, whereas mm. it's probably, it's a relatively small investment for the company mm. to do something like that. Yes. Mm. Right, this is such a fascinating discussion. I'm really hating myself for having to interrupt it, but please note that this event will be followed by a drinks reception, and if you still have questions, I'm sure our speakers would be happy to talk to you during the reception. So the reception will take place in the staff room, which is next to the canteen on this floor. Uh, Kelly and I would like to say thank you first to Rosalind and Agnes for coming over and contributing to this event. And then we would like to say thanks to Rosie, first, for <laughs> writing this amazing book. It's and we have some spare copies here, if you would like to buy your own copy, and also for contributing to this event. And thank you very much for coming over and for your questions. And uh, we are looking forward to seeing you in the reception. Uh, have a nice evening. Thank you. Thank you.